Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Cisco Champions Radio. This is episode 27 of our third season. Our topic today is all about Cisco Unified Border Element, more commonly known as CUBE, from the wonderful world of collaboration technology. I am Kim Austin from Cisco Collaboration Marketing, but don't hold that against me. And I'll be playing the part of moderator and host today. Our special TME guest is none other than John Vicroy, a really smart product management guy from Cisco who knows all about Cube and more. And we've had Enda raise his hand as the Cisco champion to get the conversation moving. But let's start with John, if you can introduce yourself and what the heck Cube is, and then Enda will introduce himself and start peppering you with really good questions. Okay, thanks, Kim. Um, yeah, so uh, as Kim said, my name is John Vickeroy, and I am the uh, product line manager for Cube. And um, I was pleased to be invited to this forum. Uh, it's a little bit new to me, so uh, I'm getting used to it. Um, and I understand it's a little bit free forum, and uh, we want to allow the discussion to go where the uh, attendees and the listeners want to go. Um, I have a presentation. Those of you listening by podcast, we are going to put a PDF of this presentation up. But um, I have a, a number of topics. Uh, one is cube overview, just so uh, people who uh, are, are not familiar at all or, or, or very little familiarity with cube uh, can get a, a view of that. And then I have uh, different uh, specific technical topics some of uh, which is about uh, uh, some of the newer features that we've introduced in the past uh, uh, six months or so. Uh, those in thing include features like uh, Cube multi-VRS and multi-tenancy, which have a number of use cases that are, um, are uh, very relevant uh, uh, to enterprise uh, and also to our uh, HCS partners. I also have a section that talks about SIP normalization. Uh, this is not a new feature, but it's a very important feature. Um, and then I have a number of other technical topic areas, uh, advanced uh, security features, uh, call routing features, call admission control, call center, call recording, and high availability. And I'd be happy to uh, talk about any of those items or others if um, there are questions on topics that I didn't have in this list. So let me let me hand it over to the uh, moderator and see how you want to uh, guide this. Enda. Hi, John. Uh, thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, I'm Enda Cal, and I work for a Cisco partner here in Ireland. Um, I've been a Cisco champion for the last number of years. I'm looking forward to the conversation this evening about Cube. So 
Perhaps, John, we, we could start off with the overview of, of CUBE and, and what the primary use cases for, for it is. Okay, that'd be great. So, I have been uh, in my role now for about five years, so I've had I have a lot of experience with the product. But uh, uh, in addition, I have watched as this new market has evolved. Uh, actually, maybe two markets. One is the market from the service provider perspective, where the um, uh, incumbent local exchange carrier or ILEC uh, the CLEX competitive local exchange carriers have all recognized that <clears throat> the, um, the TDM and ISDN technologies that have been so prevalent for the past uh, 35, 40 years uh, are now uh, absolutely in transition. Uh, the competitive pressures on these uh, ILEC and CLEX service providers is enormous uh, to make this transition into a VoIP environment. And, uh, but uh, their customers still want a high reliability, a high quality uh, connection. They don't want to give that up even, even though they're moving from TDM or ISDN to uh, VoIP. And um, so that's where the new technology uh, SIP, Session Initiation Protocol, comes into play because this is the signaling uh, and the um, media control, not the media, but the media control and signaling um, uh, of the new voice over IP world for the PSDN. Now, uh, well, one of the things that distinguish uh, this new uh, IP PSDN from the legacy TDM PSDN is um, the nature of the uh, DMARC uh, at the customer site. In the TDM world, uh, the ISDN and TDM standards were extremely rigid and with very uh, minimal uh, options and uh, uh, relatively straightforward. Uh, now that we're in the world of VoIP, there are a lot more options, a lot more capabilities, uh, as would be expected as uh, you get into purely digital that uh, uh, has the ability for programmability and, and greater service options. And uh, as a result, um, there is a need for a demarcation device uh, between the customer's prem and the service provider. And irrespective of who owns that demarcation, whether it be the customer or the uh, service provider, that demarcation is come to be known uh, what is called a session border controller. And it controls the, the SIP sessions, the uh, this session initiation protocol, those uh, initiate signaling sessions and then control media sessions for the voice and, and also video traffic. Um, and the session border controller is a mediator between uh, the SIP sessions to the IPPSDN and the uh, SIP sessions into the customer prem. There are a variety of reasons why those sessions require mediation. Uh, and that gets into the functionality that the session border controller uh, uh, provides. Now, um, uh, those features, those functions of the session border controller 
at least from Cisco's perspective, we put into four categories. <clears throat> Those features are session control, security, interworking, and demarcation. And in each of those four categories, there is um, uh, a, 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 an abundant set of features. And I'm talking generally about session border controllers in general, but uh, of course, uh, Cube is a mature product that's been in the market now for uh, 13 or 14 years. And uh, that full list, uh, pardon me, that full list of features in each of those four categories, session control, security, interworking, and demarcation, which just by coincidence happened to uh, uh, have the acronym of SSID, so um, kind of easy to remember. Um, but uh, Cube supports the broad range of features that fit into these four categories. And um, uh, uh, in the broad scope of the deployment and the rapid deployment of uh, PSTN, IP PSTN services, the session border controller is, has become essential uh, both for the service provider to deliver operationally effective services and for the customer to uh, um, uh, receive uh, uh, good quality uh, voice and to receive the kind of services that voice over IP can enable. So uh, that's the basic overview of what the session border controller is and Cube is a full feature session border controller. Uh, okay. Let me take a pause and see if you got any questions there. Yeah, um, maybe first, uh, as you said, the product's been around for a number of years and the transition from PSDN to, to IP traffic has been progressing over that period. Do you have any sort of view on this, the percentage of the transition away from PSDN to the VIP at this point? Are we 10% of the way, 50% of the way? Any rough statistics from the, the U.S. market? Well, uh, uh, U.S. and worldwide, um, and uh, I have it on the top of my head. Uh, it's it's a topic that I talk to with some frequency, so um, uh, I, I know I'll astound you with my uh, uh, statistics here. But um, the U.S. at this point is approximately 35 percent uh, of the way along in a transition now. Uh, this kind of transition is never easy to judge, but if you were to take all uh, of the TDM circuits that were deployed by service providers, both ILEC and CLEC, in the U.S. in the year, say, around 2007-2008, uh, before SIP trunking really, really uh, gained momentum, the net 35% uh, number that I give you represents that 35% of that count of TDM circuits, uh, T1s primarily, but uh, uh, T3s as well, um, uh, has been transitioned. Uh, so uh, that for sure is, uh, means that it's no longer um, a new technology. It's uh, fairly far along in deployment. That having been said, uh, there's still plenty of growth in the market, and that doesn't even take into account uh, subsequent growth in services uh, from the original uh, base in 2007-2008. But let's call that 35%. In Europe, we see it at about um, definitely less than 15%. Uh, 
so let's call it in the range of 10 to 12 percent. But Europe is poised for um, huge growth. We're, we are anticipating that the, um, the growth that we've seen in the U.S. Uh, was uh, more evolution uh, in uh, Europe. Uh, I, I guess we call it more revolution because all of the major ILEX, Deutsche Telekom, BT, um, I believe France Telecom, uh, have all announced that uh, within the next three, four years, they will no longer offer ISDN circuits. Uh, then you go to um, Asia, and Asia is only about uh, five to seven percent. So when you look at uh, uh, the entire market worldwide, um, <clears throat> the transition to SIP trunking and to uh, voice over IP SIP services from an IP PSTN is definitely less than 10%. So it's at a, uh, still at a very early phase. And we believe that the number of SIP sessions that exist in the market right now is around 65 million. But over the next 10 years, there's going to be about another 630 million. So, tremendous growth ahead. They're, they're very detailed statistics. Um, like I say, yeah, I'm very, very, very interesting to to see the, the market, the different rate of progress in the markets. Well, when you say 65 million SIP sessions, did that enable the endpoints or per day per that 65 million figure? No, I mean uh, the. Um, <clears throat> When you think about a session border controller and the connection to the IPPSTN, um, you can think of um, uh, each session representing uh, a single channel in a TDM uh, environment. So if a typical T1 uh, had 24 sessions, uh, then, uh, uh, then the equivalent in SIP environment would be 24 uh, SIP sessions. So that 65 million, uh, if you divided that by 24, that would give you the number of T1s that were uh, replaced. Does that make sense? Okay. Yep, that makes sense. That makes sense, yeah. That's just ballpark approximation. The calculation's a little different for uh, ISDN, but same idea. Very good, very good. Okay. Just while, while you're talking there, a question has come through from the chat, so we might just um, bring this one up. It's from Brad Haynes. I think Brad's from Global Knowledge. So the question is for SIP connectivity, are there any gotchas depending on what service providers offer their SIP service without naming anybody specifically? Well, <clears throat> or you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, uh, I, 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 what's important to understand about IPPSTN voice over IP as it's moving forward, and moving forward in particular with SIP protocols, is that SIP protocols, uh, similar to HTTP, are an ASCII-based uh, signaling protocol um, uh, as compared to H323, which is, uh, is you know, non-ASCII and completely undecipherable as ever 
seen any any kind of a um, uh, tracking tool. Uh, but with uh, uh, SIP protocols, they're very decipherable, uh, and you can capture the ASCII and look at them. Now, what that has to do with the term you use in terms of gotchas is that uh, the the signaling information provided is defined by IETF standards. And there are a number of, uh, of standards that uh, define the overall uh, SIP protocols. But in those standards, uh, if you ever have the, uh, the pleasure, uh, and that's in quotes, of reading through these standards, um, you will find uh, a lot of terms related to each element of the standard, some will say must, some will say should, some will say can, some will say may. And with that range of uh, verbiage um, and verbs uh, describing different elements of the standard, it leaves um, uh, um, openness in terms of the interpretation of these standards. Um, SIP protocols have, in fact, uh, improved dramatically in terms of their standard interoperability, but it is not and never will be like H323. There will always be uh, variations in the substandards based entirely on, well, I shouldn't say that, based primarily on the flexibility in, uh, in how the standards are written, uh, but also the fact that uh, there is room for um, for some uh, non-standard SIP elements that some vendors put in. Um, so, uh, you know, if that's the case, then, you, then the obvious uh, question is, then how can you ever ensure end-to-end uh, uh, -end interoperability? And this is where session border controller, like Cube, becomes a very critical element because of the functionality it provides related to interworking. And it performs a function called SIP normalization. And the SIP normalization is what allows um, uh, the SIP signaling protocols on one side of the session border controller. And the session border controller is known as a back-to-back -back user agent, as that description would suggest there are two sides of the uh, session board order controller, one facing the PSTN and one facing into the, uh, the user site, the corporate prem or where, whatever it might be. And um, uh, so a critical function that the session border controller and Cube as an SBC performs is um, the normalization, which actually allows for modification of the signaling received in order to accommodate the kind of signaling that is needed um, on the other side of the connection. So, um, you know, gotchas implies that uh, it's, you know, unrecoverable and uh, can't be managed. In fact, uh, SIP normalization, and in CUBE we refer to the tool we use for this as SIP profiles, is a very uh, normal part of the configuration of cube. Um, and what kind of modifications are needed? It'll vary uh, from one service provider to the next. It will vary from one prem equipment to the next. 
uh, all depending upon what the matching of the signaling looks like. There's uh, okay. a lot of different examples and a lot of different use cases, but they are, are very much um, manageable because of this SIP normalization function. Does that make sense? Okay. Yep, that, that makes sense. So, so I take it one of the reasons we would use Cube then is to overcome that or to enable internetworking between elements that might have different interpretations of the standard. Correct. And, you know, to be clear, when we say that the standards have improved, the, um, uh, the variations have uh, certainly reduced over time. Um, and so the kind of SIP normalization required for any individual customer to a particular service provider um, is typically relatively small. So there's, you know, some minor modifications in signaling. But when you look at it from the service provider's viewpoint, who is going out to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of users, all of whom have their own, not all, but uh, the majority of whom have their own IPPBX or some kind of on-prem call control. And those are from a dozen or more different vendors and with all sorts of versions of software. The service provider needs to be able to perform a SIP normalization, even if it's a minor one, relatively easy in order to accommodate each customer and to allow the installation of the SIP uh, uh, connection to go smoothly. Okay. John, on, on your slide here, you have some other information about the capabilities of Cube. For example, maybe you can talk us through in a, in a very simple deployment with SIP, somebody might put an ASA in place of a search and border controller, but with, with Cube in place, maybe you can tell us about some of the extra capabilities we get and why we would use it instead of um, a simple firewall. Sure. So, <clears throat> um, I've used the term back-to-back -back user agent, and um, the term back-to-back -back user agent means that um, there is a complete separation between the signaling on one side of the cube uh, to the service provider as compared to the signaling on the other side to the uh, the um, the uh, end user location. And that complete separation of signaling um, uh, has a number of advantages. Um, for one thing, it provides a true demarcation point uh, where you can do fault isolation. Um, it has um, the benefit of topology hiding so that there is uh, uh, no knowledge of internal IP addresses uh, to the external world. Um, and uh, so uh, it provides a, um, uh, a demarcation in a voice over IP world, which, uh, you know, voice over IP, you assume it's all packets, so it should all flow. But uh, you don't necessarily always want that for the reasons that I mentioned, to be able to have topology hiding, to have fault isolation. Um, other things that uh, the cube does that uh, an ASA um, uh, wouldn't 
uh, are things like media, media handling, um, including things like encryption, um, so the ability to uh, terminate uh, an SRTP media stream associated with a particular call and translate that into RTP or vice versa. Um, the ability to do transcoding from uh, a G711 uh, codec, as an example, to uh, a G729, uh, okay. or any kind of uh, DTMF interworking. Um, all of those are things that the Session Border Controller adds value with. Okay, understood. I maybe topical after after some of the issues on the internet over the week last week. I, on your security section here, you also talk about things like voice policy and toll fraud. And I understand there's some capabilities in Cube to assist with that. Right. Well, we actually consider the security capabilities of Cube to be highly differentiated from the competition from other session border controllers. And um, the reason for that is we look at voice security um, at two different levels. Um, there's part of what Cube does for security that um, should, must, uh, in fact, be part of any product that calls itself a session border controller and markets itself that way. And that is simply the proper evaluation of the SIP signaling uh, interaction and, and also the handling of the media flow. So a session border controller should always be evaluating whether the initiation of a, uh, a SIP session, which is done using what is known as the uh, SIP invite, is from a uh, authenticated and registered source. And then it should be looking to see that uh, uh, there are no um, uh, what we call malformed uh, SIP packets in the overall uh, signaling interaction. Uh, again, that's just part of the normal protocol processing that a session border controller uh, should do. Um, it should also apply to media. Uh, for example, you want to make sure the session border controller must be able to um, make sure that it can associate each RTP session with a uh, connected uh, SIP session. So uh, the signaling performed by SIP, uh, uh, the, the, the objective of it is to set up a path on both sides of the connection where the known parameters of an RTP stream, its codec, its um, um, bit rate, et cetera, are understood, and uh, therefore it can have uh, successful communication. But that means that that media stream which is sent in what is known as RTP, real-time protocol uh, format packets, needs to be associated with that SIP session, and the session border controller needs to be able to ascertain that for each um, RTP packet that comes in, uh, because you don't want, uh, I love the name of this, you don't want rogue RTP packets. Um, 
some of those RTP packets are, are quite roguish, so you want to protect against that. Those are things okay. that a session border controller will normally do. But what okay. Cube also does is not just look at whether the packets are formatted right, but also evaluates patterns of calling to determine uh, whether uh, there might be some malicious patterns of calling. In other words, all of the format and sources on the uh, SIP and the RTP can be correct, but it might yet still be a malicious call. And the only way you can tell if it's a malicious call beyond that, because calls coming in from the IPPSDM, the IPPSDM may be registered and authenticated, but calls coming into it are not. So the only way you can tell that whether they might or might not be malicious is to have some ability to look at the patterns of the um, metadata associated with each call. And Cube has that additional capability, so it can be used for protection against uh, telephony denial of service attacks, uh, it can be used for protection against uh, uh, a variety of uh, forms of uh, malicious callers uh, to allow for termination of calls, for redirection of calls, for recording of calls, for uh, notification uh, with respect to any, um, any potential malicious attacks. So is that anomaly-based detection? So it's adaptive, it learns a pattern, and if calls deviate from those patterns, they, they're... That's, that's, the ba that's the basic idea, yes. I mean, um, okay. but, but understand that you're not always going to know in advance what the pattern needs to look like. So one of the things Cube is able to do is to identify if a particular um, uh, calling number um, has called in, uh, you know, a certain number of times in a certain period of time that the uh, the IT manager, the telecom manager, would consider to be an anomaly. Um, it might also look at uh, using E164 terminology um, the exchange and to see if the area code and exchange are being uh, used more often than you would expect. Um, a lot of TDOS attacks against companies are coming from some of the um, uh, over-the-top um, uh, calling elements like Google Talk or Skype, and those hmm. exit a particular uh, gateway, which have a, uh, a particular area code and exchange associated with them. So being able to track uh, patterns of that, um, not predetermined, uh, because, again, if it has to be predetermined, then it's easy to circumvent. Um, yeah. And uh, Cube will identify those patterns and uh, um, make an assessment as to whether, uh, based upon the human-defined policy, as to whether there are calls occurring that appear that they might be malicious. Okay. I hope, I hope that was clear. Yeah, no, that, that, that's very clear. Perhaps, perhaps John, at this point, maybe we talk about some of the deployment models for Cube. Uh, a favorite topic of mine because this is uh, an area where Cube also has a, a, a very strong competitive advantage. Cube runs as a um, application on top of the iOS of the Cisco router. 
Now, uh, that's true of the primary router platforms, which would include the ISRG2. Now, the ISRG2 is coming towards the end of its life cycle. It's been in the market since 2005, and uh, 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 so there are literally millions of those deployed, and they're all capable of running Cube. But uh, we now also have Cube on the ISR4K, and we have Cube on the ASR1K. Um, Cube okay. also runs uh, in virtual Cube as part of the uh, the CSR uh, virtual router. So the, that that range and breadth of platforms gives Cube uh, uh, a distinct competitive advantage in terms of breadth of scalability. Uh, Cube can be deployed on a low-end router like a 2911. It can be cubed or deployed on a high-end router like an ASR1006, and uh, the cube configuration uh, absolutely could be identical on both devices. Of course, the ASR1006 has a much, much larger capacity, but the point is, is that its uh, configuration is compatible uh, between those two routers and across the full range of uh, the um, uh, the platforms that I just mentioned that uh, support Cube, and again, to repeat, okay. also the vCube. So that breadth of scalability provides significant flexibility to our customers, some of whom are going for centralized SIP trunk deployment where there is a central location, a data center, where all the connection, connectivity to the PSTN occurs. Some are going for a distributed model, um, and uh, there's uh, a tremendous number of examples of that. Uh, we have one of the largest retailers in the world who has over 10,000 locations, and they have a cube in every one of their locations. And then there's all options in between, and some of those options where a customer will have both a centralized PSTN connection and a distributed. And because of Cube's breadth of scalability, it fits well into that, and we have the management tools to be able to manage a single device or to manage, as in the case of that retailer, several thousand devices, but get a unified pane of glass to look at all the calling activity to see how um, how it's progressing, if there are any problems, et cetera. And is that centralized managed management component part of Cube, or is it integrated with one of the other Cisco management platforms? No, this is what we call the Management Express Border Manager, MEBM, and it is uh, created by our third-party partner, uh, Arcana. Arcana has been a Cisco party, uh, a partner for a long, long time, going back to before the year 2000. And um, they have a number of uh, solutions. Uh, uh, the majority of them are some kind of voice orientation of managing large-scale number of devices. And so Cube fit into that uh, model, and um, they've done a very good job in supporting both the provisioning and configuration as well as the um, monitoring and troubleshooting. Okay. Excellent. And maybe this is a good point to pick up a question from Brad as well in terms of high availability for Cube and given the range of platforms that's available, I'm sure that's well supported. So high availability and just um, 
to the extent that we are replacing TDM and ISDN connections uh, with SIP connections, the, even the concept of high availability really never existed in TDM and ISDN. So it's new capability that exists in VoIP. And um, so Cube has a high availability model, uh, which is an active and standby. Uh, so you have a pair of cubes. They have to be identical platforms, that is, two ISR uh, 4300s, two ASR 1006s, so they need to be identical. And one is the active device, and the other is the standby device. And they are set up in uh, an HSRP uh, virtual IP routing uh, uh, configuration. And there is, with the active device, ongoing checkpointing to the standby device so that uh, because uh, cube and session border controller is a um, it, it, it is a active session manager uh, it is uh, in in line in the session both for signaling and for uh, media if the active fails then the virtual IP HSRP functionality will reroute to the um, standby, and the standby, uh, because it was receiving checkpoint information, will have fully stateful information about each session as, uh, as had been handled by the uh, active before it uh, went down or failed, and therefore the standby will be able to uh, uh, continue those active sessions without losing a call. So in call okay. centers and that kind of environment, obviously very important. Okay, very good, very good. Thanks for answering that. I know at the start of the call you were keen to talk about the new features in Cube. So maybe if there were some of those you particularly wanted to call out, that would be great. Well, um, now that I'm kind of getting used to this format, I, I do have a presentation, but I think I'm just going to describe uh, some of those features and um, they would be available but if you don't mind, I would like to make one quick comment uh, to the listeners. This comment sure. goes directly to the partners, but it can also be of value to uh, the end customers uh, who, who have partners that they work with. We have um, an Internet-based online CUBE training uh, uh, module. So uh, you can uh, go online from your uh, Windows uh, desktop and log into this uh, cube training. Um, it will set up an RDP session, R, uh, Roger uh, uh, Dog um, uh, P. I don't know what the use for P, but pilot. Piglet. Piglet. There you go. Thank you. Uh, session, which allows you to emulate uh, various devices, including a desktop phone, so that you can actually see the result of your cube configuration and it also allows you to log in through the RDP session into a live cube box and to a live call, a Cisco Unified Call Manager so that uh, we have this module for training again all internet based and uh, we make this available to our partners and the partners in turn if they choose can make it available to uh, the end customers. So 
it's a relatively excuse me relatively new capability. We've only had this since about uh, February of this year, uh, but okay. we are out doing training modules literally worldwide. We have uh, uh, one of our top technical guys who's in four cities in Europe training over 200 people, and he's not carrying around a big bag of equipment to do this. All of the sessions are using this uh, uh, Internet-based remote uh, training. So uh, if you're a partner and you want more information about it, um, um, contact me. Uh, J as in John, J-V-I-C-K-R-O-Y at Cisco.com. And we'll uh, we'll help you get um, get uh, involved with it. Excellent. Sounds far, sounds very good. Yeah. As far as uh, some of the new features, um, I'm going to mention some of the new ones, and I'm going to mention some of the ones that uh, I just know are um, widely used and have uh, uh, very very broad value. So very quickly, one of the newest features is that we have added multi VRS and multi-tenancy. And the multi-VRF and multi-tenancy has a, quite a broad range of um, use cases. So uh, it's going to be difficult to try and hone in on any uh, one use case. But, a, but uh, that said, I'll try. Uh, one use case is for many of our larger installations of Cube, um, they are interacting with um, uh, more than one service provider. Um, sometimes they have data centers in uh, multiple locations connecting to um, uh, several uh, service providers. And um, it becomes critical for them to them the end customer to ensure that the call routing mechanisms that are applied to one service provider be maintained separately from the call routing uh, mechanisms for other service providers. There are a number of reasons why you might want to have that separation. Um, one of them might just be operational simplicity. Um, but uh, uh, with the multi-VRF and multi-tenancy, you can set up um, uh, more than one routing table within the Cube platform. Again, the Cube is running on the router, so it gets to take advantage of the underlying routing mechanisms of iOS. So you set up uh, the uh, uh, routing tables, uh, more than one, two, three, uh, however many VRFs you might want. And um, those VRFs are mapped uh, to uh, specific interfaces on the router, whether those are physical or VLAN type of interfaces, and then are uh, uh, in turn mapped into the cube uh, call routing mechanisms referred to as dial peers. So you'll have certain dial peers that are mapped to one VRF, uh, other uh, dial peers mapped to other VRFs. Uh, in order to enable flexible use cases, it is possible to do inter-VRF call routing, or it's possible to have completely sequestered uh, call routing uh, so that uh, no call into one VRF will go to another VRF. And um, okay. again, uh, we have one customer who has 
um, rather complex um, connectivity to the different service providers. They do not want to have to keep track of separate IP addresses for each service provider in each location. Well, in this multi-VRF environment, they can use the same IP address for every service provider and yet still achieve um, different call routing for each service provider. Again, that's because of the multi-VRF capability. Another uh, use case has to do with multi-tenancy. Um, uh, we have uh, state and local governments which uh, uh, are uh, feeding telecom services out to different state agencies, and they want each of those agencies to be treated as separate entities with their own call control. So the multi-tenancy enables that, uh, but it's also used by uh, HCS. Cube Enterprise has now been adopted as the session border controller within the HCS solution, so any of you uh, uh, Cisco HCS partners that are listening to this that weren't aware of that, uh, now you are. And it's taking the place of um, a um, product called Cube SP, which we marketed five, six years ago. Uh, that Cube SP was an OEM product. We had a third-party SBC software uh, running it, uh, on top of iOS, but it was not truly integrated SBC functionality. So now you can replace uh, that CubeSP with the Cube Enterprise, which is 100% uh, Cisco intellectual property. Okay. I could go on and on. Now I'm not even sure I remember what the damn question was, but uh, hopefully that helps. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. I have to actually uh, close this shop down. Uh-oh, okay. Just because of the clock, it's not—it's nothing personal with either of you <laughs> or any of you. We just well, have I'm glad a, you a, said a, that because I was feeling bad, Kim. No, but, this, uh, is, this is good stuff. All right. And, yeah, you, you're definitely the cube guy. I'm wondering if you have, like, a cubular head at this point. Um, I do. I do. <laughs> kind of like a Minecraft guy. <laughs> Um, but I want to uh, thank you guys a lot. Uh, this has been episode 27 of Cisco Champions Radio Season 3. Um, I want to thank you, John, for joining us and sharing your cubular insight on Cube, and Enda for leading the question uh, and answer session, um, and everybody for joining us and participating. Please look for this episode and other fabulous episodes, of course, on blogs.cisco.com and on iTunes. I'm Kim Austin, and I've played the part of today's moderator. Tune in next week. In the meantime, I'll see you on Cisco Spark and in the Twitterverse at Cisco Kim Austin. Over and out for now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.